Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brad. In this episode, we're discussing SST-104, the self-titled Blind Idiot God LP. We had uh, one song by Blind Idiot God a couple episodes ago on the No Age compilation, and now we've got a full length. And Brant, when we were talking about it on the No Age episode, we were both pretty pumped to hear Blind Idiot God. We got kind of a taste, and I was very unfamiliar with this album. I truly was, and I had a great time with it this week, and I'm looking forward to talking about it. And we've got a special guest. Yeah, we've got Andy Hawkins on the podcast. I'll be honest with you, I was unfamiliar with this record too, but I went down a total blind idiot god rabbit hole this week, and I'm kind of low-key obsessed with blind idiot god right now. Yeah, I ordered all their other records this week. <laughs> I listened to all of them this week too, like yeah, yeah, a yeah. lot. I was like, whoa, I had no idea. I got a, Especially after listening to the interview with Andy too, talking about the uh, the subsequent records, I was like, I got to hear all that. Because I'm sure there's something really good going on on those records. I got to hear them. So, spoiler alert, Ryan, they're all good. Oh, nice, yeah. excellent. Yeah. Well, uh, hey, why don't you hit us with some spiels to start us off? Okay, how many do you want? I want the full spiels aganza. Okay, you asked for it. Okay, first a few uh, updates. Uh, Lou Barlow posted today that they're dinosaur juniors in the studio. Did you see that? I did not. There you go. I'm a bit of a spieler stealer here because you told me about this, but uh, Worm 2020 is playing February 21st, 2020. Uh, they're calling themselves Worm 2020 with Milo Gonzalez, that is uh, Chuck Dukowski's son, and No Age. And they play a venue called The Smell. The post says, it's our reunion debut, will appear in some order. The wording there makes me think that there might be more shows or, you know, a full reunion of some sort. What do you mean that it's with No Age? Like they're playing with the sub-pop band, No Age? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Boy, that'd be a cool gig. Yeah. Uh, Circle Jerks are doing a 40th anniversary tour of group sex. Yeah, I can't believe that, man. I never thought they'd do that. Yeah. I, I kind of thought Greg Hetson was like not playing music for years now. Yeah, I don't know. He's been playing in some punk rock karaoke band or something. Oh, yeah, I read that too. You're right. Yeah. Uh, Jack and Dino had a post that there will be a fourth Jack and Dino record. Stuff he recorded with Barrett Martin, circa 2010. Earthworm stuff from 2014, plus a couple of Suitcase Nuke tunes. I don't know what Suitcase Nuke is, and I couldn't find out. I don't either. He says, redid some vocals and added guitar parts. Remixed it all so it'll sound coherent. So we'll keep an eye, eye out for that. I was actually just listening to some Indino's Earthworm lately. Good stuff. Yeah, it is good. Uh, the Chiefs. They, what? Yeah, they had been working on new material with uh, Bob Glassley prior to his, his unfortunate passing two years ago from cancer. They are releasing a 7-inch mixed by Bill Stevenson. It's coming, oh, cool. It's coming out on Missing Fink Records, and all proceeds are going to Bob's family. Did you see, Ryan, this is relevant to our next episode did you see mark lanigan has a book coming out no what's that about is it like lyrics again no it's like an autobiography it's called sing backwards oh, wow. and weep released april 28th 2020 just go on amazon and read like the spiel about it and you'll you'll be pumped when you read it oh i know i want it already yeah. i know it'll be good 
yeah, it's too bad we don't have it right now for our upcoming Screaming Trees episode. Okay, uh, I'm going to do a little thing, Ryan. This is the Mojack Pod Holiday Gift Guide. Are you ready? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm done on my shopping. You should have told me this already. Well, some of these are you probably are already on your list, so... Okay, lay it on me. Okay. Henry Rollins has a new book coming coming out called Stay Fanatic. There's a video on YouTube that just makes you want it so bad. It's like, it's all new stuff, not based on his radio show notes. And it's got tons of rarities from his like private collection and stuff. Yeah, I'm pumped. I ordered the signed edition. Nice. Uh, we were talking a couple weeks ago, I think during the No Age episode, you were asking asking me about Henry Cow. Coincidentally, I saw that there's a book out about Henry Cow called The World is a Problem. No way. Yeah, Hmm. by a guy named Benjamin Pikett. And the tie-in there is, of course, Fred Frith, who had stuff on SST, was in Henry Cow. It's 512 pages about Henry Cow. Yeah. Elliot Sharp has a book. I think I sent you a picture of it. Irrational Music. I picked it up. I haven't read any of it yet. It says, it's a mix of tales from the road with thoughts on music, art, politics, technology, and the process of thinking itself. I'll be interested to hear what you think of that. I I would be tempted to pick it up, but I might need an actual recommend first. Okay. Here's a recommend that's definitely not for you. Greg Prado. (laughs) (laughs) I'm never going to get tired of that. (laughs) You know how I always complain about how these books kind of focus on the glory years and then just barely touch on, you know, generally the later periods of these bands. There's a, Greg Prado has a new book, like probably his 10th this year or whatever. It's called Take It Off, Kiss, Truly Unmasked. And it's about uh, the era in the 80s where Kiss took their makeup off from Lick It Up through Carnival of Souls, which is the album they made that sounds exactly like Alice in Chains that came out in like the mid nineties or whatever. Yeah. That's not a recommend for me. (laughs) I'm halfway through it and I'm loving it. Okay. Um, Slayer just played their final show like two nights ago when we're recording this, they have a new DVD Blu-ray called the repentless Killology. It has a 45 minute movie, which I haven't watched yet. It's apparently like a, basically a gore fest set to Slayer music, but the 90 minute concert film from the LA forum, I've watched it twice now and it is by far the best shot concert film I've ever seen ever, ever, even better than some of those live rush videos. Those are pretty good. Yeah. Wow. I'll still never watch it. It's awesome, man. Okay. A couple more things here. The replacements box set. You can get that. Just don't order it direct from Rhino. Hey, you want an update on that? Yeah. So here's how stupid Rhino and Warner are. Are you listening, (laughs) Rhino and Warner? Here's how stupid they are. They emailed me and they said, hey, don't worry. We shipped it. It's coming. They arrived today. Okay. And and me and my buddy Graham, we split on the postage because it's insane. Right. The U.S. postage to get it here. Anyways, we ordered a special edition with like a limited edition cassette in it. Yeah, the limited edition cassette was not included in the box sets. Rage. Oh, I I can't believe how much I cussed when I opened that up today. <laughs> but what am I gonna do? I gotta email them and chase them for months again. 
Yeah, that's bullshit, man. Such incredible turds. Yeah. Well, maybe this will help, Ryan. Are you going through doll withdrawal? Oh, not anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's a brand new Jeff Doll album called Electric Junk. And Dennis Tech plays some solos on it, too. Oh, cool. There you go. There's your Mojack holiday gift guide. That's a good one. Those are my spiels. I think I've ordered or purchased or only received part of it, Warner and Rhino. Anything that I would have wanted on that list. So, But others will want stuff on there, which is great. I got you that Greg, Greg Prado Kiss Unmasked, truly unmasked <laughs> book for Christmas. <laughs> I thought that wasn't a recommend. Oh, no, it was Slayer that wasn't a recommend for me. Is it my turn? It's your turn. Okay, I've only got a couple of micro spiels. I'm curious, Brant, we just had Record Store Day, like the Black Friday version of Record Store Day. Yeah. Probably a couple of weeks ago when this episode comes out. I'm curious whether you were on the hunt for anything this time around. I completely ignored it. It was pretty lame. I uh, went to one of the, just one store this time, and I showed up, and they had absolutely zero of what I was actually looking for. So I'm like, whatever. I'm going to find it in some used bin eventually. There was one which was an SST-related item. There was a Larry Mullins and Mike Watt 7-inch that was released oh. this time. Unfortunately, probably won't find its way easily to Canada, but for Watt fans out there, like you and I, we have to keep our eye out for that. Right. There was also an Alex Chilton 10-inch I was looking for. There's a, another Miles Davis LP called Early Minor. It's tracks from the In a Silent Way sessions. Oh, yeah. Which is a good record. There's, because of the Hot Rats 40th anniversary, they had a Frank Zappa Peaches and Regalia 10-inch with some bonus tracks on that, which is kind of cool. Picture disc 10-inch, actually. Oh, wow. And uh, the last one that I was trying to find was there's a double LP by Raymond Scott called The Jingle Workshop. And it's a bunch of little, I think it's like television commercial or radio jingle pieces of music by Raymond Scott. And I always dig that guy's stuff because it reminds me of Looney Tunes cartoons. And it's um, incredibly complex, you know, music from the 40s, 50s. And then he got all weird into crazy synthesizers and stuff, too. He's a cool dude. Okay, and for my last spiel, Brandt, I might be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure on this Blind Idiot God record... It's the first time that we're really getting into some reggae, like some dub music. Is that the first time, like on the show? I think so. I think so too, yeah. So I was just wondering, do you have any favorite punk reggae dub songs or bands that are not the Bad Brains? Punk reggae, well, the Ruts, I guess, or The Clash, but or DOA. But like, I'm a huge fan of Roots reggae, I've got fair amount of roots rock reggae stuff yeah but i was thinking like you mentioned doa and who else did you mention the clash of course the ruts dub and roots rock reggae and stuff was obviously an influence on punk rock yeah a uh, pill yeah pill for sure i thought scream from the this side up album that song still screaming is a definitely hmm. up that alley yeah, and I know like the DC guys. I think were pretty into reggae, probably from the Bad Brains. Yeah, the Slits. Yeah, probably like yeah. UK stuff for sure, right? Yeah, but there's there's a ton of like ska punk stuff, right? But actual reggae punk. There's not 
a, there's not a ton who do it like very authentically, you know? Yeah. yeah. And there's that band, the dub trio we've talked about a few times. So what's your favorite reggae DOA song? Probably, um, I think it's a cover maybe. It's uh, War in the East, I think it's called. Right. It's on War on 45. That's pretty good. Or like uh, Death to the Multinationals. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. Hey? Yeah. Yeah. I thought I would get a couple of DOA reggae references <laughs> out of you somehow, some way. There's one on one of the newer records too. I can't remember what, what it is, but. I don't know. I was just thinking like when I, we'll, we'll get to it in uh, the history lessons, but um, it was a nice change. I liked it. And oh, it yeah. reminded, reminded me of some great punk rock reggae tunes out there for sure. I even like, like, I'm not afraid to admit it, man. I rock the police a fair amount too still. That's fair. And there's, there's some, I know you do damn good stuff there. Well, do you want to get into it with the history lesson? Let's do it. History lesson part one. So we've got Andy on the show, and he goes through the history really well for us. So I thought I would, just as part of History Lesson Part 1, maybe wet our whistle a bit about Blind Idiot God. Sure, man. And then maybe with a very quick kind of overview, and then maybe talk about some other some of the later records real quick. I know they're covered in the interview, but the first thing I thought I would mention, Brant, is... Uh, we mentioned it on the No Age episode about how Michael Whitaker had done up these killer liner notes on the jacket. Yes. And there's a, a killer spiel about Blind Idiot God on the back there. Should I lay it on you? Lay some spaceman on me, man. Okay, here it comes. With influences as diverse as reggae legend King Tubby and Speedmaster's Metallica, the sounds of Blind Idiot God is a swirling pastiche of melody and fury, emphasizing radical changes in texture and dynamics as opposed to changes in melody and rhythm, gives their music an ethereal quality that you can almost touch. The band was formed in St. Louis by three longtime friends who viewed their only alternative as drinking beer in parking lots. The sound that they create is as solid as their Midwest upbringing. The wall of sound that they build has as much in common with Stravinsky as it does with Minor Threat. The glory and passion of their music comes from their willingness to tear down those walls and build them again and again in a never-ending cycle of musical maelstroms. The song, And then it says, the song Dark and Light is from the album Blind Idiot God, which is SST 104, the one that we're covering on this episode. And keep that in mind, too, that it's called Dark and Light on the No Age album. Wow, I missed that. Now, um... It mentioned it in the spiel there, but they were formed in 82, around then in Missouri. Andy Hawkins on guitar, Gabriel Katz on bass, and Ted Epstein on, or Epstein on drums. Now, Joe Carducci in Rockin' the Pop Narcotic has got a couple of good spiels about them, actually. And it talks about the fact that Blind Idiot God, and we'll get into this again, is an instrumental band, no singer. And this is what... Joe Carducci said he called Blind Idiot God a powerful instrumental guitar bass drums trio and they explained why it did not have a vocalist in the press bio of its debut album release so this is the this is the one sheet that would have come if you got a promo copy essentially and it said this because nobody can scream loud enough to get over the sound we make and even if they could 
they would undoubtedly sound like they were really angry or in some sort of severe psychic pain. And we don't want to sound like we're angry or angst riddled because we're not. There's a lot of very good music out there that gets screwed up by all these overbearing, dogmatic exhibitionists who call themselves vocalists. The music usually ends up being relegated to mere backdrop status. And I thought that that was interesting. Like, obviously, Blind Idiot God, it was pretty deliberate for them not to have a singer. And when you listen to this record, they're very self-aware of that. And they take advantage of it, is what I would say, too. The fact that they don't have a singer really gives them a lot of room, a lot of space to build all these, well, kind of like the Spaceman described it, hey? Like all of these um, radical changes in texture and dynamics. That's the Spaceman. He's totally true. Yeah. Oh, the Spaceman's always right, man. Yeah. Um, And this is what else... Carducci said about Blind Idiot God here. He says, the rise in the number of largely or totally instrumental bands after 1985 was not a response to market demand, except insofar as there was virtually none for any decent contemporary band. Musicians decided that as they couldn't make any money anyway, it would be better to have no singer than to keep a problem child for non-existent commercial considerations. Basically saying, like, why would I have a vocalist? They're a pain in the butt, and it's not like we're going to get rich anyways. And then he lists off a ton of instro bands from this era. Pell-Mell, Gone, Alternatives, Black Sun Ensemble, Left Insane. Yes. Ronnie Montrose, Brandt. Yes. (laughs) Universal Congress of. Yeah. Tools of Ignorance, Gore. Gore is awesome, man. I love Gore. Do you know them? No, I don't that you dude you need to check out gore they have a new album out this year actually you probably wouldn't like it because it's um <laughs> no seriously there's a lot of pinched harmonics in it like almost like it was even getting under my skin a little bit uh and i like i like that stuff i'm just trying to reconcile the comment you totally got to check out gore they've got a new album but you wouldn't like it <laughs> check out the album mean man's dream by gore yeah, came out around the same time as this album. Okay, I'm on it. Check it out. And, tell me what you think of it. Okay, I will do. Gore, Mean Man's Dream. Yeah. And uh, Carducci goes on to say, and the many dead style jamming bands, of course, were in Stro. And then he said, and then, of course, there's Blind Idiot God in the list. So, kind of acknowledging that sometimes having a singer was more trouble than it was worth, I suppose. LSD, man, lead singer disease. Yeah. <laughs> Um, another good quote I found was in the Ira Robbins Trouser Press record guide. And it says, um, this is the, the comment here, refusing to compromise their chops with some cut rate rock vocalist. This young instrumental trio, uh, originally from St. Louis, but now living in Brooklyn, constructs a huge brash sound influenced consciously or not by Blue Cheer, Jimi Hendrix, the Velvet Underground, The Meters, The Sex Pistols, Glenn Bronca, and Jamaican Dub, simultaneously leaning towards heavy metal with less ego and reggae with more voltage, these demonic decibel gluttons are having yes. the time of their are having the time of their lives in a hammer of the gods territory. Yes. 
So, I mean, it's a lot to live up to those descriptions, but man, they, they definitely, uh, they live up to it. It's a great record. And as, as those quotes mention, Blind Idiot God gets into a, a ton of different styles. They started as a punk band, but they got into punk, like punk, dub, classical, noise, jazz, all sorts of different styles come in on uh, this record. Um, this is their only record for SST. You cover that in the interview. And there's a couple of reviews I was able to find about it as well. Um, on All Music, it says, it calls this record an extraordinary debut. The three musicians exhibited startling originality and impressive technique, both on their instruments and in the depth and style of their compositions. All very, very true. Mm-hmm. There's also a review in an article called Electronic Musician. Andy Hawkins, in particular, gets a, a name check here. And they say Andy Hawkins' guitar dips and swirls, chases its tail, and ultimately screams its existence, while Ted Epstein and Gabriel Katz lend form and substance on bass and drums, respectively. At 19, 20, and 21, the trio is young enough to dazzle with potential. Jazz, heavy metal, reggae, art music, Blind Idiot God has elements of all of these, yet establishes their very own recipe. All true, right? Hey, I found an interview with Bill Laswell. Oh, yeah, because he, um, he was the producer on their second album, Undertow, from 88, right? Yeah, he's worked with Andy a lot, too. Yeah. Um, and this is the band Massacre, the guy's asking. The, the interviewer is this guy, um, Hank Steamer. We talked about him recently. I can't remember where, but I recognize that last name. We read an, another review or interview with him or something, but the band Massacre, do you know them? Yeah, I've got that record. Yeah, I, I really like it, but yep. for, uh, for people who don't know, it's Bill Laswell and Fred Frith's like avant-garde free jazz uh, project. He's asking about massacre and blind idiot god and and uh bill laswell says there's something else in blind idiot god that's a little more sophisticated without boasting there's an underlying intelligence you can't quite locate it but there's something about it that makes it smarter and and hank steamer says maybe that's why not a lot of people know of them and bill laswell goes and they never thought that being known was going to matter they were more interested in getting the right amps and rehearsing the thing so it's perfect. And they forgot about the whole thing of success and the audience and money. They just didn't think about that. Their obsession was really the sound and getting their parts right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't wait to talk about the tracks. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, one other quote I found also from All Music about this self-titled album. It, it says... Often they begin with anthemic lines precisely and forcefully etched by Andy Hawkins' guitar, backed by the supple, powerful drumming of Ted Epstein. But midway through, the melodies tend to be twisted and pulled like taffy, elongating into mutant forms only hinted at previously. This creates marvelous tension, as one is never certain how a given song will resolve. That's very, very true when you listen to this record. Especially the part about supple drumming. Yeah. And and it's uh this album, it's it's the first like the first side for me, it's just building lots of tension. And then the second side is like releasing almost. Yeah. 
We mentioned that they put out an album after this, Undertow, in 88. They also put out an album called Cyclotron in 92. Ted left the band in 96. They reunited in 2001 with another guy, Tim Weiskita, or Weiskita. And then they released the uh, Before Ever After album in 2015. That's on Invisible Records. Uh, Cats left in 2012, actually, and then was replaced by a guy named Will Dahl. Another interesting thing that I came upon that I didn't know about is uh, their only song with a vocalist, hey? Yeah, we talked about that in the interview. Yeah, with uh, it's Henry Rollins on the Freaked soundtrack. And it's... Um, now, did you also know that Blind Idiot God, essentially the whole band, performed on that Laswell Praxis album? Yeah. Have you in, heard that? Uh, no. What is it called? Sacrifist. It's probably a little too metal for you because it's almost like grindcore at times but like john zorn's on it and stuff at like uh, Bucketheads on it bootsy collins uh, mick harris who's like the drummer in the original napalm death is on it and that guy from the boredoms yeah that uh yamatsuka i yeah he's on it and it's fucking insane man sacrifice that's the one yeah. from 1993 yeah yeah they've got a few albums but i think Bill Laswell's kind of the the mainstay. Those albums you mentioned, that Undertow, that's been reissued yep. in 2017, and it's got the tracks. It's got the 12-inch EP, Sawtooth, on it, and that, yep. has, a, that has a collaboration with John Zorn as well. And uh, it's got two versions of that Henry Rollins song, Freaked. Now, yep. have you seen that movie, Ryan, Freaked? No, I haven't. Oh, man. <laughs> it's like... One of the craziest movies that it's like a, it came out in the nineties and only in the nineties would a movie like that have gotten made. But like, it's uh it's like a big budget trauma movie or something. I think I know what it was actually. Now that you say that. Yeah. yeah. I, I have a little spiel on it. Um, so it was, uh, it's a 1993 uh, comedy science fiction movie. Tim Burns and Alex Winter, uh, wrote it they both star in it uh it's directed by this guy tom stern and also alex winter uh, we talk about alex in the interview Al alex winter of course is uh ted theodore logan or no uh bill is it bill prescott esquire i don't know I the don't wild know stallions wh whoever. yeah no i know i know yeah. who else is yeah he's yeah. from the wild stallions but i don't yeah. know which is which <laughs> <laughs> well it's been a while since i watched that too but uh he plays like this child star and uh randy quaid's in it he's like the villain and uh he's got these two henchmen that are like these giant eyeballs like huge eyeballs with machine guns and they're called i and i and they're like these rastafarian oh, really? eyeballs yeah and uh keanu reeves is in it uh bobcat bobcat goldthwaite mr t and uh oh no way i gotta yeah. see this show yeah it's insane and like uh Winter, Alex Winter and uh, Tom Stern, they had directed a short film in 1988 called uh, The Barbecue Movie. Uh, with It features music by the Butthole Surfers, and it stars the whole band, stars in it. You can see that on YouTube. Um, and they started to write this movie Freaked with Gibby Haynes originally. He was supposed to be in it, and it was originally supposed to be called Hideous Mutant Freaks. And it was supposed to star the Butthole Surfers, 
Uh, Tom Stern and Alex Winter had a show on MTV called The Idiot Box, which you can also watch. I think there was only one season of that. You can see all of them on uh, YouTube. They're like really absurd kind of sketch comedy. Um, but definitely worth your time. Like I said, this movie was originally supposed to be called uh, Hideous Mutant Freaks. And the end of the movie, the end credits, has a song called Hideous Mutant Freaks by Parliament Funkadelic. Ah. Uh. Yeah. And apparently the studio tried to kill the movie because the guy who had greenlit it, he got fired during like the editing stage or whatever. And I don't think it got a super wide release, but then it kind of got a new life on Late Night Cable. And I actually found a podcast called From and Inspired By, and it's by this guy, Nick Spacek. He does, uh, it's a podcast about movie soundtracks, and he actually interviews Andy and Gabe about the soundtrack. Oh, no way. Yeah, so if anybody wants to know a little bit more about Freaked, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. How would you not want to know more about it after that description? It's an awesome movie. It's got the butthole surfers are all over it. And uh, Blind Idiot God does, does a bunch of music too. And the opening scene with with the Hank song is just awesome. Like the opening credits. wonder if it's on one of those streaming services. Probably not. Yeah, probably not. I have it on DVD. Do you? Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> Maybe I'll have to bore it. Yeah, man. Um, hey, so we should probably, before we go to the interview, mention... Uh, as well, that uh, Andy put out some solo stuff. Yep. He's uh, has the Azonic project. Yeah, I got to check out more of that stuff. Yeah, there is the uh, the one album. Is it Halo from '94? That's the one he does with Bill Laswell, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and then there is um, Skinner's Black Laboratories with Justin from Godflesh that came out in '95. Yep. Gabriel Katz was on a Bill Laswell album too called the Dub Terror Exhaust. Yep. And then um, the other thing that Blind Idiot God did with Alex Winters, they actually did some songs on a documentary of his called Downloaded, hmm. which is about Napster. Right. I heard, you know what, now that you mention that, I heard Alex Winter get interviewed by, geez, it might even have been Henry Rollins actually about that podcast, about that um documentary that documentary yeah 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 i mean i haven't uh i didn't look it up to see if it's online but probably can find it somehow some way yeah i i don't even know when it came out but i saw that in one little snippet on blind idiot god but that's kind of the stuff that i pulled out it's a bit of a very high level straw dog of a history and we might be best suited just to turn it over to andy now i got two more things to mention before we do that those uh other Blind Idiot God records that you mentioned, my other favorite was Cyclotron. That's yeah. like, I need to spend way more time with them and I'm, I'm planning on doing that, but really like that one. That was, was done by Martin BC as well, actually. Yeah. So they, they did go back to Martin. Did you, did you do anything on their name, on the band name? Blind Idiot God? Well, you kind of covered it in the interview. Oh, but we didn't cover it enough. So. Okay, go for it. Okay. So it, we mentioned it's based on a, love uh, hp lovecraft like yes. character or whatever so it's uh hp lovecraft's description of the god azothoth which is a, de a deity in the cthulhu mythos and the dream cycle stories he is the ruler of the outer gods and he's sometimes referred to as the blind idiot god 
he's a dreaming monster whose dream is where the universe resides. And he's completely unaware of anything going on in the dream, which is where he gets his, his title, the blind idiot God. He's the most powerful entity, closely followed by his grandson, Yog sothoth Oh, why do I know that name? Diglo Abortions. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Here today, oh. Guano Tomorrow, the spawn of Yog sothoth Oh man, I'm almost embarrassed to admit that. <laughs> that name triggered something in my head, that memory. Yeah. Hey, you know what though? Hmm. You're not going to believe this, but I was listening to some Deglo abortions this week. Yeah. Yeah, because I bought that uh, a four pack from Supreme Echo. Oh, you got the seven inch. Yeah, the Canadian reissue company. They put out, um, in particular, obscure reissues for Canadian bands. Like the one I really wanted to get in this four pack was a band called the Extroverts from Regina, Saskatchewan. Yeah. But it also had uh, a Daglo Abortions 7-inch in it, and it was good, man. It's like the demo version of Bedtime Stories. I was rocking out. Right on. Yeah. Anyways. Let's kick it over to Andy. All right. We're speaking to Andy Hawkins on the podcast today. How are you doing today, Andy? I'm doing good. Thank you. Good. So we're talking about Blind Idiot God today. Now, I have that you guys were formed in St. Louis in 1982 um i think 82 is maybe a little late we i'm pretty sure we had started recording and playing together in 81 yeah definitely it's it, 82 I, I think when when we put out our first tape that was available by mail i think it was in the old maximum rock and roll classified tape selling days ah musically was it similar to you know what you ended up doing later when you, you know, got onto SST? Um, yeah, except for everything was really short. I think our, our longest piece of music was like 55 seconds or something. Oh, really? <laughs> just really short. Yeah, really short, fast uh, kind of riffs that we put together. And I'm not sure why they were so short. Maybe it was just, uh, I, I can't even really remember why, but I do remember that the fast, the longest one was like 55 seconds. <laughs> Now, how old were you guys? Were you still in high school when you were doing this? Yeah, I was born in 65, so I was 16. Uh, the drummer was was 12, I think, when we started playing together. And oh, wow. the bass player was the same age as I was. Okay, and it was Gabe and Ted at yep. that point still? Ted, yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Like, what kind of music were you into when you were in high school? Um. I was uh, luckily I was I worked in a, a very good record store called Vintage Vinyl. It was one of the first uh, used record stores in the United States, and um, they also the guys who ran it were, you know, they were musical fanatics, and they had they sort of made it their business to have every section, every kind of music that you could possibly have that with the, all of the best imports and everything that they could get their hands on. So they they essentially funded the record store by doing the used record thing, which makes a very good profit. So we had all sorts of great records in our store, all the best jazz records, all the best import records of, of every type of music. And then at a certain point, you know, I, after working there, I had had a chance to hear lots and lots of different stuff. So I, I guess I was already pretty well-rounded. My mother was a musician as well, a ragtime jazz, blues piano player. Okay. So... 
so I'd had a, a pretty good musical education by the time we started playing. Uh, but I, I suppose all I really cared about in the, at that moment was what was who was playing fast and uh, who had who had the best guitar sound. <laughs> <laughs> and who was that? Good question. I certainly <laughs> thought that the Circle Jerks group Sex Record sounded pretty good, and they, they seemed to have it together. Yeah. <laughs> but prior to that, you were a jazz guy? Uh, I was in jazz band, and I, I wouldn't say that I was a big jazz fan, but I mm -hmm. but I liked it enough. And I was I would listen to Mahavishnu Orchestra and things like that. And, and then, you know, I was into Led Zeppelin and Rush and all right. the sort of normal stuff that kids were into. And of course, you know, I was looking for anything that was more adventurous, rhythmically speaking, uh, and you know, harmonically speaking. But there wasn't a whole lot <clears throat> on offer. There was mostly just high energy, hardcore, punk stuff, and that was a great, a great taking off point. And I think that's sort of how I got the idea to, to take it a bit further. Was the plan from day one to be an instrumental band, or did it? Did it just kind of happen that way? It kind of just happened that way. I mean, I didn't, uh, we thought we would find a singer at some point, mm -hmm. but we weren't going to let it stop us from developing whatever musical ideas we had. And then at a certain point, I realized that having a singer meant that they would have to yell and that they would sound angry. <laughs> and I wasn't particularly angry. None of us really were. So I kind of thought that was a like a, a weird thing to put on the music, and I really I I immediately eventually I just said, well we don't need a singer. There's no reason to have one, and it would limit us in other ways. Like we couldn't change genres so much that there would be this expectation that they would have to sing a certain way. It was it's singers are problematic. I think is the best way of putting it. <laughs> so were you playing shows? Yeah, we we were playing. Uh, I think we. Oh, gosh, let me think here. We probably, I think we played some parties in the, that in the '82 and '80, definitely in '82, and we played with. Played, we opened for the Minutemen. Oh, perfect. And Black Flag in '83 and '84. We 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 traveled out of town. We went to Kansas City to play some BFW gigs. We played with uh, this. Uh, we played with Doctor No from California. And who else was on that? Oh, Raw Power and Dr. No. That was a, a show in Kansas City in 83, I think. So you're, you're totally and, uh, in, in, the, in the hardcore scene. Yeah. Yeah, there really wasn't any other kind of scene, I suppose. Um, it, it's funny that, that when you think about today how many different kinds of music, how many different genres there are. Back then, there really weren't. Right. There was... There was there was pretty much hardcore, and then there was a smattering of people doing weird sort of new wave music, and then everything else was pop music. Everything else was people playing, you know, regular formatted pop songs with singing, and even if it was quirky or weird, like R Romeo Void was was still kind of a pop band, right? You know, but uh, yeah, there wasn't this fractious kind of all these different weird genres. A bit there was there was a little bit of that, you know, like. My friends didn't seem to like 45 Grave as much as they liked, you know, the Circle Jerks. Right, but all that arty, all that, all that arty weird stuff, like say the Butthole Surfers or whatever, still mm -hmm. it was all hard, based around the hardcore scene, because there was no yeah, nowhere was. else for it to go really. Exactly, and it, and it's funny. I think people 
totally sort of miss the the beginnings of these things and how everybody was kind of stuck with each other in this weird <laughs> way. <laughs> well, it sounds like you found your, your crew pretty early on if you're playing with Minutemen and Black Flag. Yeah, I would say so. Um, I I always liked the stuff on SSD. I, I thought everything... <clears throat> I thought they had a, a, a cohesive kind of... To some degree, at least more so than other... Maybe more than Homestead or... or right. I can't remember who else was putting out records that I could, it was SST and Homestead for a long time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, we, we played, we, we opened for the Minutemen. That went very well. I was happy with that show. Then we played with Black Flag, which was weird because they didn't usually allow opening acts. But uh, we had the local promoter in St. Louis with this kind of oily jerk <laughs> who uh, made all sorts of, he had lots of problems with shows. They would sometimes they wouldn't happen. He would they would fall through, and uh, he he lied to me and told him, he told us that we could be on the bill. And then when Black Flag showed up, they didn't know anything about it, uh-huh. which I was guessing that might be the case. And and then I had this this loud shouting match with him where I was like thumping him in the chest with my <clears throat> fist and yelling at him in front of. Chuck Dukowski and Greg Ginn, and, <laughs> and they were like, hey, man, cool, let me play. And that turned out to have been a very fortuitous occurrence because we played well. Uh, Henry Rollins did, our, did sound for us and, and said that he liked us. And we, I stopped my, uh, <clears throat> the local idiots from uh, the mosh pit knocking over the PA columns because <laughs> we had set this. The whole thing was set up inside of a roller rink. There wasn't even a stage. The stage was made out of plywood and, and oil drums it was rather wow. unstable to say the least yeah <laughs> did you say henry rollins mixed you guys he did he was I, I we didn't have a sound man and so it turned into this thing where i guess he because they we because we weren't even supposed to be playing i guess he took it upon himself to to, to adjust the basic levels i mean i don't it, it was it was very funny i don't remember exactly i just remember looking up seeing him at the sound desk and him clapping <laughs> and then when I got on the mic, and I actually stopped the song because a bunch of people I knew were, were you know, moshing around, and they were about to knock over one of the PA cabinets with right. the stacks, which would have been disastrous. And so I think Henry thought that was very, very cool that I that I was trying to make sure that everything went well and mm. that it was being, you know, conscientious. But yeah, and that was a good gig. They played well. That they, they had their their big rat sound PA with them that sounded good, in spite of the fact that it was in a roller rink right that also doubled as a boxing gym <laughs> but uh that apparently we sent them a tape uh that later that year and i think that was one of the reasons why we wound up being asked to, to join the label okay so like what happened between 83 and 87 when when the self-titled album came out did you do more demos well, or like more tapes we didn't really i went uh i it was one of those things where I always wanted to play music and my, I kind of, I don't know why, but I, I don't even remember if I did actually have a full blown argument with my parents about going to college and for music versus something else. But I went, I started out going to college for architecture and I guess in theory we were on hold. Um, but I, I was in St. Louis for the first part of 19, or no, I was in St. Louis, yeah, for the first part of 1984, and then I went, I transferred to Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, 
then I came back and I, I convinced my parents to let me go to music school. And I went to music school for a while in St. Louis. So we kept playing and doing gigs. And, and then we sent them the tape. I, we actually didn't send them the tape. I think it tape until 1985, maybe. Okay. Or 80, late 84. And we didn't hear back. And then eventually, while I was in, I went to Berkeley in Boston for one year. <clears throat> that was the last year on the college train. And I got a postcard from, from, uh, Greg, I think, was the person who wrote it, and said so he heard they heard the tape and they liked it and they wanted to know if we wanted to make a record. So I dropped out of college. The guys moved up to Boston, and then we moved to just for the summer. Then we moved to Brooklyn in eighty uh, in eighty six. Okay. And yeah, so there was a lot of bouncing around. My uh, Gabe was in film school for a brief minute. Uh, I think Ted was still, you know, trying to graduate from high school, which is kind of hilarious but uh so yeah so there was a there was a uh a sabbatical if you will <laughs> right in there and um and but while while we all sort of worked out our adult life plans and our we turned out to be as as crazy as we could be and decided to move to new york to be in a band so right so the band is now you've all moved to new york to presumably to focus on blind idiot god so yep. I, and by that point you know you're going to do this this record for SST. Now yeah. how do you go about do they tell you who they want to have do the record or or is it just like No, they um they were very loose about it. They gave us a budget. Okay. I think it was 20 $2600 something like that. And I I had already thought about this when we were in Boston. I had time to research things. And we didn't want to go back to St. Louis for a couple of different reasons, <clears throat> not least of which was I'm pretty sure there was not any 24-track recording studios back then. There certainly weren't when I left. There was one 24-track recording studio like 20 miles away in some weird uh, suburb of, of St. Louis and that I went to as a, in my jazz band recorded there. But in general, there wasn't really a good infrastructure for being on a label and putting out records in, in St. Louis. Right. So we, we knew that St. New York probably were going to be where we wound up. And I had, I knew about BC studio and for a bunch of, you know, records that have come out there and they had already worked with Sonic Youth at that point. Right. So it was easy for me to say, can we do this with Martin BC with him producing? And they said, sure. Okay. So it was a, there weren't that many choices, I mean, but at least there was a, a names, you know, at least one studio that they were comfortable with. And I think, other than Sonic Youth, there wasn't any other New York band on SST at that moment. Well, maybe Doss Dahlman. Oh, Doss Dahlman, that's right, yep. yeah. So you recorded in January and February of 87. Do you remember the sessions? Were they, was it like, were they spread out over multiple days? I don't remember the sessions a whole lot. I do remember it being cold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting because uh, that studio is on the corner of 3rd Avenue and 3rd Street in Brooklyn. At the time, that was a very desolate and uh, very dangerous area. There was a ton of prostitutes. I think the first day we showed up, I got propositioned by a one-legged female prostitute on it with crutches who, <laughs> who was 
missing an eye, like while I was waiting for Martin to come down and let us in. Whoa. And I'm from St. Louis, so I'm kind of used to stuff like that. But right. I think even I, I was a little rattled by that. But uh, so the neighborhood was not good. Um, but Martin had been making records there successfully, and everything seemed good. And 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 we, uh, I, I remember it being cold and. And of course, it was uh, it was a, you know a, a sort of an eye-opening experience uh, trying to record with uh, we we recorded in in a, in a way that was it worked it wasn't it wasn't easy but we, we we made it work it's hard to have sight lines a lot of our music involved you know cues and things right, right. from watching the drummer so we had to kind of work that out but it it, it turned out okay. Um, Martin and I are still friends to this day. I really like Martin, even though he put chorus on my guitar uh, <laughs> after I asked him not to. He, when I went to the bathroom, he put it on before we printed, and, and uh, I'll never let him forget that. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it was a it was a you know a, a learning experience. I, I think we were pretty lucky to have Martin as an engineer. I didn't realize how good Martin was until working in other studios uh, later on in life, and. He really, uh, he's a guy with a, you know, he went to audio engineering school. Right. Very unique, interesting person and uh, talented guy. And, and uh, we, were, we were very lucky to have gotten him as a, a first first engineer, producer. Yeah, for sure. Uh, interesting you say mm -hmm. there's chorus on the guitar. I Actually, I was when I was listening to this album this week, I was kind of thinking of like Husker Du almost. Like the guitar tone is kind of has that you know that sheen to it and a bit of like it's a bit washed out yeah were you like yeah, yeah. A, were you like uh, a big gear guy like were you bringing in lots of gear to the studio or were you like well there wasn't a lot of possibilities for that kind of stuff then yeah um i had a chorus pedal i just didn't use it on that one part <laughs> <laughs> and i uh i had i'm trying to remember if i had a what kind of amp oh yeah no i had the i had the i had a a, a modified amp um i found it when i started playing any kind of chords any chords that had dissonant intervals in them anything other than a root fifth or octave that i would get it would get kind of muddy and shitty and i i found a guy in new york who, who knew a lot about amps and i had him <clears throat> start tweaking gear for me and i got a, i got a very a good result i think uh ultimately but it was a lot of there was a lot of experimenting but you know, I think people don't realize how difficult recording is, like trying to capture detail and also getting a full sound uh, that, that can be reproduced on, on even a shitty boombox speaker and sound okay is, is yeah. really, it's like, it's so hard. Yeah. Um, does this LP do that, but, uh, the first one? Does it get, capture what you get to you? Does it? Does it do? Uh... I, I I'm not I'm not as happy with it as I as I could be. I I recently I still have the two inch tapes and I I had them transferred to digital. So uh, at some point, if uh, if the SST crew can see their way clear, allowing me to uh, to remix it and re-release it, they're they're apparently very they're very hard to get a hold of. It's hmm. unfortunate, but I've tried it a couple of times. But it'll happen eventually. It's just a question of of uh, of when. But um, I think that the basic sounds are quite good. I'm just not as I'm not as thrilled with everything that Martin did. But you know that makes perfect sense. We didn't know what we wanted. Martin was famous for a certain kind of very reverby production, and Martin, as uh, Bill Laswell used to say, you have to call the hi hat police on Martin because he's always got it <laughs> too quiet. 
Um, but uh, and that's because Martin had not played in a lot of bands and didn't realize that the hi hat is both very important and also very loud. Right. If people are playing, you know, it cuts through, and so I would. I said mixed bag. I, I think the individual sounds that we got were pretty good, but maybe the balance and the way everything fit together, I think it could definitely be be better. Is there extra stuff on those tapes? Uh, I don't believe so. That's a good question, and I actually didn't listen to the transfer. The engineer who transferred it just said, sounds good, sounds like 1986, <laughs> and, uh, you know, <laughs> we'll see what happens when I when I open up the sessions again and, and have, a, have a listen. But uh, <clears throat> I don't think there is. If we didn't finish something, it tended to uh, language. And every once in a while, uh, some riff or section of a song, piece of music that we'd make an effort with would wind up in something else a couple of years later, but it's, um, that's, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of work being in a band and trying to come up with stuff that you're happy with. For sure. When did the dub uh, reggae influence come in? Like roots reggae. When did yeah. you start doing that stuff? Well, that was, that happened in St. Louis. Um, we all, uh, we all really liked reggae. And for me, the repetition element obviously overlapped with rock music <clears throat> other other you know other kinds of popular music there's there's that and then there was the uh it, it sort of seemed like a a kind of an antidote to the to the super fast kind of you know intensity of hardcore stuff and not and not an antidote like a relief but just the opposite but still connected yeah um and so there was there was space uh i i always considered the band to be a you know, a very, I, I wouldn't say egalitarian, I didn't have an egalitarian approach to the band in, in the sense that there was always a, a a big idea that was holding us together. But the rhythm section is in, you know, when I, when I think of great music, I, you, you don't, you can't have great music without a rhythm section that's doing something on purpose and doing it really well. Yeah. So I thought that was, there was some overlap there, the minimalism, the repetition and you know uh it has it had its own kind of atmosphere that you could dip into and and it's it's i was always amazed when i found out that all the that reggae and dub music in particular even though it was made meant for like intimate like kind of sexual dancing right it's it was made by people who had never heard any electronic music or any kind of, they had, they didn't know who Carrie Riley was or, you know, right. or anybody, any like that. It's such a, it's such an odd way to approach music. And, and you know, half of those guys, you know, had a high school education and had probably spent almost no time in a recording studio. Which yeah. came up with these the whole crazy, the whole studio yeah. was an instrument concept is exactly yeah. not something that was being done yeah. by anyone really so we were just we were in, it really into that and we tried to incorporate it and of course we weren't looking necessarily to be authentic that certainly wasn't the point but that gets back to the singer question if we had have a had a singer what would we do would they would they sing in a jamaican accent i mean it would just right. be ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> once you started going like you know, in 87 and there, and there was, you know, mm -hmm. you had more options. Like we just, for example, we just did the no age compilation. Was, oh, was yeah. it easier to, for you guys to play on bills with, you know, perhaps artier bands by that point? I would say so. I would say so. I mean, weird stuff would happen. Like we, we opened for Geek Mouse at the 
the 930 Club in D.C. Okay. And we actually did that again at a place called Wetlands, which no longer exists in, in New York. We also opened for Eka Mouse. <clears throat> and, uh, and it was a good gig. I mean, uh, but other than that, yeah, it was almost always on the arty side of things. And we are, you know, we're, we're more arty than we are not. Um, and I don't know that I it's, – it's, it's sort of a shame that arty is this catch-all term for – at the time, it was – there wasn't that much instrumental rock music. So yeah. it, everything about it seemed art, artsy. But, you know, to me, it's fairly elemental and, and pretty pretty gritty and, and not like – it's not unapproachable. But it, it's – it's yeah, it's it's a arty, artsy is sort of a troublesome term. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the, the notion of not having a singer automatically kind of takes you out of the, the standard rock category and, and maybe yeah. makes people want to lump you into a certain – subset or something you know no it's true it's, it's certainly true it's 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 again we're and we're back to the whole fact that there weren't really the genres there was there was no math rock there was no grindcore there were i mean there, there was by the time you know the the late 80s rolled around there was there was people were starting to break off into these little groups but there was in general at least when we were starting and trying to formulate our identity as it were uh, that stuff wasn't. There was. There were just catch-all terms like that, like art rock. Now, what the about guy, what's his name? Dave Kendall on on uh, MTV. After we had our we had our first and only video on MTV, he he referred to us as a mixture of hardcore and jazz. And I thought, well, that's just impossible and silly. <laughs> um, but but what else was he going to say? Right. You know? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> There's no reference points at that. You know, in 1987. No, yeah. Yep. One reference point, though, is perhaps the meters who you cover. Mm -hmm. As far as being an instrumental yeah, group, anyways. And that, yeah, um, that's the same thing as the dub in my mind, just a, just a different emphasis than the, where the uh, snare drum hits in the bar. Right. Uh, but there, it's the same kind of repetition, uh, minimalism. The feel is very important. The space in the music is very important. Um, I love the meters. I love them from the moment I heard them. And... I was they they had that first compilation of of all their 45s on the English Charlie R&D label uh and that was where I first heard them and and uh yeah I was very I was really hooked but and it was funny that we did cover the only instrumental song the only song that had vocals up until that point <laughs> that they had done yeah it's again it's a, it's a function of uh the repetition and the, the sort of emphasis on the on the feel and the cumulative effect of playing uh, a groove or something that's meant to be, re you know, repeated. Right. And what about the first track there, a Stravinsky blasting off? Tell, tell us about that one. <laughs> uh, well, I was, uh, I was, and, and, and of course still am a big fan of Stravinsky, um, especially the early ballet stuff, because it's certainly the most uh, wide open and kind of adventurous music that he made. Right. Um, and I, I love that, that bass line and, Coming up with uh, a dissonant, interesting, but also memorable kind of line isn't easy. And I thought, that bass line, we should just, just list that right off. And so we did. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he provided the, uh, Travinsky provided the inspiration for another piece of music 
that was on the second record um, called Roller Coaster. I read a, a, a biography or an interview of him with this by this music journalist named Robert Kraft. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, at one point in the book, he asked him about ideas that Stravinsky had that he had never been able to realize. And he, one of them was uh, a kind of music or at least a piece of music where the tent that the, uh, the tempo was always changing and never quite staying the same. And I thought, well, that's a great idea. And he couldn't get it done, of course, because when you're dealing with a bunch of orchestra musicians, right. <laughs> it's like, it's like, you know, if they, they only know what's put in front of them and there's no, it's very hard to notate something like that and have everybody understand it. And so we tried it as a three piece and it took a while, but we, you know, the, at first Ted, the drummer was very kind of, you know, missed by the idea. And I said, just think about it like a, you know, a bar graph. It'll go up. We'll never get faster than this and never slower than that. And it happens over time. And uh, we eventually got it to where we could replicate it. And we came up with that piece of music. And that would, I would say that is a direct ripoff of, of Stravinsky yet again. Well. <laughs> Luckily we were able to make it work. <laughs> Hey, I want to ask you about some of the names on the thank you list, because I think it'd be interesting, uh, might open some uh, a few interesting conversations. So obviously, Greg, sure. Greg, Ray, and Chuck are all um, SST folks. Yeah, uh, they took a chance on us. That was a, that was a, a very, a very interesting thing. I mean, I can't, they're the only people who ever gave us a good accounting and paid us. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I really have nothing bad to say about them aside from the fact that, uh, you know, they had so many bands on the label uh, by the time our record came out that it was maybe hard to support everybody. Right, yeah. And we didn't wind up going on tour for uh, until a whole year after the record came out. Well, but, you know, that's like, it's not like if they had had everything run super tight, that somehow we would have been, you know, uh, our careers would have soared. It was just they wanted to put out records that they thought should be put out. And they, they had a very, very open-ended attitude about, about it. And, uh, I don't think the, I don't think, uh, music today would be anything like it is without those guys and their, their can do attitude. They had a, they had a really good, really good open minded attitude. And I think that's a great thing for missing sure from a lot of stuff today. Did it get a response though? Like I'm sure they shipped it to radio and you know without the touring did did it get a lot of reviews and stuff the album? There were there were reviews and um they were almost all good. I think the only bad review we got was from Byron Coley <laughs> which made perfect sense to me because I don't think we had a we were we were too we were too weird for we were too all over the map like it, yeah. it's <clears throat> he couldn't he couldn't peg us. Right. And and that's fine and and I wasn't you know, it, it's, it's, it, that was the only bad review I, I remember. Hmm. Um, so we, it did get a good response, but I think people still, this is the nature of youth culture. People are always looking for something to take off and that people can kind of all get behind. And the fact that we didn't have a singer and we weren't stylistically, it, I don't know if we, if we had somehow tried to re boil down everything we did into one kind of music that we, you know, we, 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 I suppose we could have done that and did really postmodern about it, but I didn't. I wanted to keep things in their respective areas because I thought we could, we could sort of make the most of the form by separating them 
And then, you know, as, as time went on, I knew this might happen. We, we would get, we got things, the lines started to get a little more blurred to where basically we have two kinds of music that we do now, which is one that's involves the full-on loud overdrive guitar and one that involves the clean kind of guitar and the more minimalistic dubby type approach, even if it's sort of funky and dubby at the same time. Right. Back to the back cover, uh, Miles, I'm assuming, yeah. is the cover artist, Miles Rutland. Was he somebody yeah. you knew? Was he a friend? Uh, he was He was my best friend oh. in, uh, in throughout high school. Yeah, we were uh, super tight. I uh, This is hilarious. I was... I went to the public high school for my district, which is the University City, which is right next to the the, uh, the, the St. Louis City limits proper. I met Miles at a record store at the at the record store I worked at, and okay. we became friends. We had some friends in common, but the funny part is that I got my high school was very large, and but I uh, for one I I couldn't figure out the reason why but for some reason I no one would talk to me for like the entirety of my sophomore year and I found out that there was a rumor that I was gay and that was the reason why no one would talk to me <laughs> and so I'd already made a bunch of friends including Miles and so I went to the I transferred to the school that he went to which was in the city mm -hmm. and uh, we were you know we loved music he's the guy who uh, packaged and put out the tape that was sold in Maximum Rock and Roll okay. um, so he was you know we were very good friends, and and he did the album cover, and we were both H.P. Lovecraft fanatics. So we, uh, so he was, he didn't have to, we didn't have to talk too much about it. He just kind of did what he did, and and mm -hmm. uh, he did a great job. Uh, hence the name of the band. Yes. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a Lovecraft enough, reference. That, yeah. Uh, yeah, it is, and. Um, Interestingly enough, the the my discovery of H.P. Lovecraft occurred in the basement of Miles's apartment building. He found a, a box of books in the basement that someone had left behind, and one of the books was an out of print uh, Catholic reader on the nature of evil, and it had uh, Edgar Allan Poe, Ambrose Bierce, and H.P. Lovecraft uh, <laughs> in it, and and that was where we. Uh, we were fascinated, of course, by that book, and and uh, and so that was the beginning. That was before, I think, only just after that did his books come back in print. But because I, I think they were completely out of print for at least a couple decades. Right. So that's <clears throat> he was my friend. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. Oh, sorry to um, hear that. Yeah, strangely enough, he died of a he died of a heart attack at age twenty six. He had some sort oh, of wow. malformation of the heart. Oh, that's terrible. And. It, yeah, and we we were sort of lost touch with each other in in uh, in the late '80s, early '90s, but we were in communication again, and we had just finished the third record, and I sent him a tape of it, and he died that day. Oh wow! <laughs> Before he ever heard it, I called up to see if the FedEx, his name wasn't on the FedEx <laughs> delivery receipt, and. Uh, and the person who answered the phone at his job told me that he had died the night before. Oh. Which, uh, yeah. Wow. Terrible. But, um, but yeah, very weird, too. Um, but he was going to do the third album cover had he, had he not been uh, recalled by the man upstairs. Hmm. All right. You mentioned uh, Miles sending off the tape to Maximum Rock and Roll. Tim Yohannan gets mm -hmm. a thank you here. Was he a, yeah. he was a um, supporter? Yeah, I would say so. He... Um, He's, I believe he's the one who wrote the review in Maximum Rock and Roll, and it was 
it was uh, favorable, and and he seemed to understand what we were getting at. <clears throat> he, I think, he had, you know, the more one of the more broad editorial kind of opinions in on, of the bunch of people who, who wrote for it. Yeah, that's that's that was the. I'm pretty sure that was the reason why. That's what I remember. It was a long time ago. <laughs> okay, Alex Winter, talk to us about uh, how did how did that relationship start? Uh, Alex is my oldest friend. Oh, okay. We've known each other since kindergarten. Oh, wow. <laughs> in a bizarre series of events, yes. Uh, he he was uh, he was born in England, but he moved to uh, to America to uh, St. Louis early on because his mother was a she was a, a dance uh, she ran the dance program at Washington University in St. Louis. So I we met in kindergarten and we were friends uh, throughout grade school. He left. To move to New York to go work on Broadway in seventh grade, I believe it was, and uh, we of course we stayed friends throughout that time. Yeah, and uh, we actually he and I made uh, a couple of uh, silly movies together when we were kids. Oh, really? Stop motion animation. Yep. <laughs> yep. And then later, um, he uh, he made his first movie, Freak, in which we the and some music cues inside the inside right. the film as well. Right. And interestingly enough, that that title track uh, that we want that we did with Henry Rollins <clears throat> initially, when Alex contact we were talking about us participating in it, he told me that Iggy Pop had sent him a uh, a demo for the movie, oh. which is interesting because <laughs> it was unsolicited. He he just liked the idea of the movie and he so he wrote a song and sent it to Alex and it was like this <laughs> down tempo blues number which was cool right. I mean it's it's a you know Iggy, Iggy could probably sing the alphabet and make it sound compelling but he uh, Alex was like well that's not really what we wanted and, and he said but why don't you see if you can write something that Iggy would want to sing on that's like more up tempo and so I came up with that that piece of music mm-hmm. we recorded it uh, just a demo and sent it to him and, and I, I got on the phone with him it was pretty amusing he he was like he goes hey man that's a great track but it sounds too much like my old shit <laughs> and of course I was like well that was kind of the point right and and he he said I'm not doing that stuff anymore man this is of course before the Stooges reunion but he was he was still doing you know doing his doing his thing right and so we, I, Alex and I were talking and he said let's see if Henry will do it and I and I asked him, and Henry was like, yeah, I'll do it. And uh, he wrote the lyrics. We banged it out in one take. There's a short version and a long version, which are actually two totally different uh, takes. We didn't edit it together. You know, we actually played both versions. Uh, the one that's in the title track is the short version. I mean, it's actually in the film. But then the, the long version of the song that I wrote initially is the one that's, uh, that we released finally on the, on the reissue of Undertow. Now, speaking of undertow, if I can ask, this is your yeah. first and last SST album. Oh yeah, no, this this is a uh, this is an unfortunate, but apparently not un. Uh, I, I'm not. We're not. I think I'm not the only. We're not the only people that had this problem with them. So we we made the record. Everything was going fine. Uh, at some point, after we went on tour, and I was thinking about making the next record. I decided, you know, I think maybe I would be, I could take some of the load off my shoulders if we could find somebody who wanted to produce and mix the record who would 
had more expertise than I did because I wasn't as happy with our the way the dub mixing went and some of the certain sonic stuff that I thought, you know, I'm just not, I don't have the experience. Let's see if we can find somebody. Okay. And I, <clears throat> I asked, uh, who was it in, uh, was it Spaceman, I think, at SST. Michael Whitaker, yeah. Uh, yeah, I asked, I asked him who he thought might be good. He goes, I don't know, but maybe, you know, I told him I was thinking of Bill Laswell and, and, and also Adrian Sherwood at one point. And he said, he goes, well, you know, I don't know those guys, but I know someone who does. And he gave me the phone number for a guy named Roger Trilling. Okay. Um, and Roger was Bill's and Adrian's manager, oddly enough, at that time, at least in the United States. And so I called up Roger, and Roger's like, oh, yes, no, I heard, I've heard of you guys. Uh, you should talk to Bill. Adrian, it wouldn't work, and he's in England, and he doesn't, like, do the rock stuff. Right. So uh, I talked to Bill. I was on the phone with Bill like about 20 minutes later, and then he and I met and had a, a drink at the at the Cedar Tavern, and I found out that he was into dub, and at least nominally speaking, he liked he certainly liked rock music, but I don't think he was terribly familiar with, you know, like hardcore and sort of the stuff that was going on in that regard. Um, but you know, he made a Motorhead record. He wasn't like he could. Well, I, I didn't have any doubts about whether or not he could do the rock stuff. Right. But. uh so that's how that relationship formed. And then I remember asking SST, like, could we get another budget and would they, would they be okay with us doing another record with, and he said, and they said, yes. And they, they kind of hemmed and hawed. And then after I told them that Laswell was involved and they didn't, they didn't really say no. So we just went ahead and made the record. Bill paid for the record. Okay. And uh, he had this, he had this label together with this guy named, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'd rather not mention his name because he's, a, he's a, <laughs> a difficult person. Fair enough. But uh, he had a record with the, the guy uh, and label, the enemy label. And uh, he and, and so they Bill Bill actually paid for the whole record out of his pocket. Okay. And then he said, he and he said, you know, can we get some money from them? And, and. I mean, he even paid, Bill even paid for the mastering. Oh, wow. And we made, made it all the way through the mastering, and I kept asking him. And then I got on the phone with Greg, and he said, well, we don't really do records with bands that have producers. Hmm. And I was like, what? You never said that. You should have told me that before we got involved with him or before we, you know, I thought you were going to give us the money. Before we spent a and, bunch of uh, his money. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and, he, and we had this long sort of very strange difficult conversation where he was just like well that's not what we do that's not how we are and i'm like well but you could have told me that number one number two uh i don't see why it matters the record he's like well we're worried it's going to cost too much i go he's not asking for anything more than what you gave us last time right. he doesn't care you know he's 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 he did this for all the right reasons and he's not looking for some sort of you know deal the only thing we wanted was the rights to release it separately um, in 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 Europe, and I think their European distribution was not even that good at that time. So I don't know that it would have even hurt them to have given us you know, it, the, let let us have the rights for Europe. And that's what I remember. And his his he just was totally we could I couldn't I couldn't budge him. Like he was just like that's it. And so we were like okay, well I guess that's that. And then actually I think I think. The only reason why it came out on Enemy is because that was the only place we could put it out. I think 
we tried to put it out with somebody else a couple of, I, I actually I actually called up uh, Ian Mackay and offered him the record at one point oh well and he was like oh we we really only do DC bands and I was like okay <laughs> <laughs> so it wound up coming out on enemy in Europe uh, which was good it meant that we had a network in Europe to plug into and we played a lot of gigs and in in Europe which was good I mean they paid better and right we sold more records over there than we did here I believe um, that so that was the uh, <clears throat> that was a a weird you know defining moment in our our career hilariously mm -hmm. enough if you want to call it that we couldn't you know there was that was a that was a stumbling block only having an import right. available so uh, so I think that if we had been able to stay on SST things might have been quite a bit different but yeah you know whatever that's just the way the cookie crumbles i'm very happy with that record i think it came out very very well and i was glad that bill was involved and there, you know i think we got a very good end result that uh that was that was it then the, the next record came out on a japanese label so we were <laughs> you know working our way around the axis powers <laughs> <laughs> the last album before ever after is that the lot is it going to be the last Blind Idiot God album? Oh no, no, we have a we have another one uh, we're working on right now. Oh wow! Yep, the That's drums great news. are like ninety five percent done, um, and we have we have a new bass player because Gabe moved to St. Louis and sort of retired from playing music. But uh, <clears throat> the new bass player is uh, he's he's very good, and uh, I'm very happy with the direction that we're going in, and and so. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. I have more plans for this this lineup. The next record after this one will be even will be even more different. But uh, that's sort of like a, we have some a super secret stealth weapon in the making. So hopefully we'll uh, that will uh, revealed in, in in the fullness of time. Right on. When <laughs> can we, not before I'm before I'm eighty. <laughs> can we can we expect this album in twenty twenty? Uh, yes. Uh, that the plan currently is for September. Right on. And what else are you doing musically? Uh, what else? Well, there's always something. There's probably more than I than I should because I, I am uh, I tend to do these things. I tend to just kind of do as much as I can and hope that something sticks. Uh, I, there is another band that's completely <clears throat> different, sonically speaking, from uh, Blind Idiot God uh, called Down River. Okay, it is a bass, bass, drums, guitar, and pedal steel. Uh, it's also instrumental. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's all clean guitar, mostly clean guitar. So it's kind of, uh, it's open tuning stuff, very sort of kind of folky in that way. Um, electric, of course, I have, um, I have, I work in uh, open tunings on double neck and six string. So I've got these nice big chordal uh, things that I was doing with the, both necks, all 18 strings ringing and then the, the old guitar player is improvising, but it doesn't really sound like that. It's all in a major or minor key. So that record is done. That record was recorded quite a while ago, about 10 years ago. Oh, okay. Um, and we just didn't have a way to get it out. Uh, so that will come out, and I hope that that band can be functional in playing. We, we, we may be able to get the original steel player to do it, but it was uh, that band was originally uh, Tim Wiskita, uh, the drummer in Blind Idiot God. Gabe plays bass on the record, and uh, a guy named Gerald Menke, M-E-N-K-E, uh, who's the steel player, who's a very, very 
a good steel player, one of the better ones in the in the tri-state New York area. So hopefully that that band will be functional. Will the Will Hart is the bass player, the current bass player, uh, not Will Hart. Excuse me, Jesus Christ. <laughs> will <laughs> Dahl. They both have two friends named Will Dahl. D A H L okay. um, is the current bass player in Big, and he is committed to playing in Downriver, but. Uh, We've got to make sure that the steel guitar player is available for gigs before we before we uh, get things going. So that record will come out hopefully in March or April. Uh, I'm working on the cover art and that kind of stuff. I'm also trying to figure out who we can get to help us promote it uh, because most of the people who promote stuff that we, you know, B.I.G. or it's more this record does not sound at all like like that. So there's that, and then I actually have another band that I'm working on with Tim and another drummer. Uh, it's a two-drummer band, basically. Uh, it's going to be two drummers, two guitars, bass, and a female uh, opera-trained singer. Oh, wow. Uh, a heavy, a very heavy band. The uh, the drumming is, there's, uh, <clears throat> Tim plays a uh, uh, concert bass drum two timpanis and a gong and the other drummer plays a uh a regular kit minus the kick drum so we've transferred all the kick drum parts to the big drums oh <laughs> and they play together yeah and uh it's not going to have any guitar solos it's mostly going to be about the drums and the singing but it's you know a heavy loud band with uh you know uh baritone guitar and two two guitars and a, and a bass and i'm very happy with the direction we should we're going to hopefully we'll have our demo done in the next couple of uh, the next probably by january i'm thinking and then we hopefully we can find a singer i had somebody lined up but it took too long for us to get our demo done and she i think she's busy doing other stuff but it looks like i think there's we'll find somebody to uh to get it get it going and that's uh pretty excited about that so and then there's azonic uh tim and i and it's, it's a new it's a new version of it in the sense that it's uh orchestral percussion meaning the concert bass drum the timpani and the and the gong and we tim also uses a, a thunder sheet which is like a big metal sheet that makes thunder noises and you can rub friction mallets on it and makes all these very interesting sounds long tone kind of sounds um and so we do that whenever we can we actually we actually just had a gig <laughs> a couple of weeks ago that we had to cancel because the venue was oh, just wow. threw up uh we couldn't even get a load in a load in mm. time so there's that um there's always something I should be doing. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a central place every, anybody who wants to know more about this stuff can go? Do you have a website? We uh, there's the individual uh, excuse me the individual music website does exist, but and I'm it, we, it got hacked a while back and we're Ooh. still rebuilding it and getting everything working. It's amazing how much this crap there is out there i'm like really you hacked my website it's, 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 they they i guess these people send out bots and they just destroy right. stuff that anything that's that doesn't have the the new security protocols uh, maybe they maybe they think they're doing doing someone a favor but uh anyway yeah so there i will hopefully there will be a better and more thorough clearinghouse for information on one on the list of things to do, I I, I own a bar restaurant here. In oh, Boston, you do? So yeah. That's, yeah, that's that's how I make my living. It's a beer it's a beer bar called the Sea Witch. S E A W I T C H. It's named after a sailing ship that used to go from New York to Hong Kong to pick up tea. Oh. <laughs> so you're there. Opium. You're you're there, <laughs> nine to five. Yeah, I live above the bar. It's on the 
I'm the proprietor, so I, I I'm not I don't work as much down I don't work behind the bar these days, but I but it's uh it's my it is my 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 big responsibility in life, and it's yep. it's good. It's it's been very it's been very uh, it's very been a, a lot of fun to do, and and uh, very happy with the way it turned out. But uh, as you know, the hospitality business is uh, it's pretty demanding. It is. It's, yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nine to nine to five is uh, nine to five doesn't really exist if you own a own, yeah, exactly. a, own a bar. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Andy, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank yeah. you, Brent. Right on. Great interview. Yeah. What a good guy. Yeah. Every time we have someone like that on, I feel pretty darn lucky, man. Yeah, we are for sure. What were your highlights? Um, well, I would love to hear those demos, like of the short, fast songs. I think he says the longest is like 55 seconds or whatever. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to hear those. I bet you they're just like proto blasts of yeah. speed, right? Apparently, like, Ted was 12 or something. Yeah. You know? Man, I bet you they just played as fast as humanly possible. One thing that he said that really made sense to me was, with a singer, you can't change genres as easily, which is a great point. Very true. Yeah. Unless unless it's like Mike Patton from Faith No More. Yeah. Uh, talking about how difficult it is to capture a sound especially like when you're dealing with guitar frequencies and stuff. Also true. Uh, great to hear he has the tapes for this. Yeah, but for some reason he said he still wouldn't put them out. Like, I guess he doesn't have the license, eh? Yeah, I think he's working on that. Um, he's talking about SST. I don't think music would be anything like it is today without those guys and their can-do attitude, which is so true. And I do have to say, when I was rattling off some of the names, I failed to mention uh, an SST name. And that's Richard Ford is also thanked on the back of this. And uh, he's, he's a guy we really want to talk to. So once again, Richard Ford, if you're listening, or if, uh, if anybody out there knows how to get a hold of Richard Ford, Send us an email at mojackpot at gmail.com, please. Uh, the, the movie Freaked, I would kill to hear that Iggy Pop song, Freaked. Yeah. yeah. I can't believe he just wrote the song for it, eh? Why not? Yeah. Go for it, Iggy. Yeah. Well, the Iggy's, the Egg's career was kind of in the toilet around 87, you know? Yeah, for sure. He okay. hadn't done cold metal yet. Or did, <laughs> or did he? Maybe uh, it was probably just coming. That's an awesome record, man. Instinct? Yeah, well, yeah. or was it Wild Child around then? What's the one? Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah was like 85. Yeah. Yeah. New Blinded Eat God stuff. Looking forward to that. Totally. So before we talk about the tracks, Brent, I want to mention my favorite part of the interview, which is when you went full SST geek on Andy. <laughs> did I? What did oh, I yeah. do? He was like, yeah, because there was, you know... Except for Sonic Youth, no other bands from New York on SST. And you're like, um, uh, I think Dust Domin was on there, actually. <laughs> just, I just want to mention Dust Domin, because like, I kind of know. Well, oh. I'm sure it was an oversight on his part, but you know, I got I to gotta represent Dust Domin, man. I thought any second there you were going to start talking about your go-to Goblin albums. You were in, <laughs> you were in, in full... In full effect. I loved it. That was awesome. And I have always appreciated Dostom in reference. Yeah. Um, now, 
we should talk about the tracks branch, shall we? Yes. History lesson, part two. All right. So this is interesting for me to go through these tracks after listening to the interview because it's one of the few times where during an interview you actually mentioned something that I picked up totally independently, but I want to mention it right off the bat, and that is the sound that Andy gets on his guitar, and you reference Bob Mould. Yeah. And the shimmering guitar sound that he gets, especially on side one here, and I picked that up too, and it works so well on this side of the record and these songs, and especially on this first track, Stravinsky blasting off. Yeah. Loved it. And a, like a throbbing, ascending riff with all these uh, waves of sound that just keep building with interspersed with this rapid fire drum sections. Yeah. Um, to me, like I almost heard, uh, like add a little more reverb to the snare and you've got Bad Brain's Eye Against Eye. Yeah, maybe. For as far as tone goes, but it works. I like it a lot. Uh, Igor Stravinsky, like, I don't know how much of this is, this track is, is Stravinsky and how much is, it says arranged Hawkins. So I don't know, you know, I don't really know if this is a straight cover of a Igor Stravinsky song or, or what it is, but he was a Russian composer. I think he's mostly well known for the Rite of Spring, his 1913 ballet. Yeah. I read somewhere that it says his scores contained many novel features for their time, including experiments in tonality, meter, rhythm, stress, and dissonance. Yeah. So that makes sense right there. Uh, for me, the opening bass riff of this grabbed me straight away. And uh, the main riff to this song was making me think of the germs lexicon devil, actually. <laughs> yeah, I can hear that for sure. Yeah, yeah my, I don't know. Like, I really don't know classical music that well, and I don't know Stravinsky. Um, but my guess is that there's a couple of melodic themes in this song that are kind of referenced or inspired by some Stravinsky melodies. That's just my guess based on what you could pull from some classical music and turn it into this song, but who knows? Yeah. Yeah. What about the second track, though? shifting sand even here you've got even more shimmering mold-esque riffage you know what else though ryan with the minor chords and the big tom like the big rack tom rolls yeah it could almost be a black metal band especially with the minor chords oh really um and the guitar tone well that's interesting because this song reminded me of like a lot of shoegaze bands almost it almost has blast beats in it too yes yeah, and Brent, some fret melting. Yeah, I, was, I wrote, this is where we find out Andy can shred. Um, he doesn't play tons of leads on this album, which is actually a, a cool for me. It's a nice change for, it's a nice change from a lot of instrumental music, you know, where there's just a guitar player or, or whatever, like a sax player going crazy over top of it. Um, but when he does, it's almost extra tasty because it's done sparingly. Yeah, I was thinking about that when when he was hitting some solos, and I was thinking, you know, that last concert that I think you and I went to together, Earthless? Yeah. And I would love to, like, I would much prefer to see Blind Idiot God over Earthless, because, as you know, like, 
Earthless was a little bit too solo-y for me. Yeah. Yeah, these are, this, they remind me of that band you and I really like called Removal, where it's yeah. like they're, they're songs, they're songs within songs with these little parts and stuff. It's really cool. They, there is um, like a trance-like repetitiveness as well. Yeah. That um, is very dynamic as well. Like you, th you think repetitive is just going to be boring over and over, but it's not at all because they are uh, every every time it's building or layering on. There's some fret melting on the next song though. I have to say, shifting sand has an arrow b beside it too because it segues out of shifting sand into tired blood. It does, yeah. yeah. It transitions into the song with some fret melting and bass chording, which I'm a big fan of. Yeah, me too. This is a bit of a dirge, but I love like the Hendrix feedback at the start and how they go back to the, like the start of the song halfway into it. It's really cool. Wide Open Spaces is next. Again, for me, there's this shimmering guitar sound, kind of sounds shoegazy to me. These uh, major crescendos with the drums, and then some sped up drum rolls and riffage, and uh, then there's like an up tempo punker section again. The main riff to this one was making me think of oh, the song of our national anthem, "O Canada." What? Yeah, just listen <laughs> to it. It sounds like "O Canada." Really? Yeah. Oh, I know what you mean. Yeah. I know what you mean. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the one they did a video for, which you can see on YouTube, and we'll post on our on our Facebook page. Um, it sh the video shows them rocking out in what looks like you know a warehouse. This is a really pummeling track. I love the port chord progression and the way it transitions from like the odd time signature part into the full on more straight ahead fast part. This was a favorite of mine on the album. Oh, cool. Now this next song subterranean flight i'm going to mention another carducci quote here because it, when i read read carducci's description of blind idiot god in this way it reminded me of this song carducci says that blind idiot god can evoke a murky dream state yeah and that's what the song sounds like to me yeah the title of this is very apt for sure subterranean flight it's moody atmospheric I love the bass playing at the start, and uh, it really adds to the atmosphere. It's cool how it kind of devolves into like controlled chaos. Another, this was another standout for me. Yeah, great side one, very strong. Yep. Uh, flip it over, then we get to the track "More Time," which is uh, this is a meters track. Yeah. And you mentioned. This. Have you heard the original? Oh yeah, I've yeah. got it. Yeah, it's on. It's on their pretty famous comp funkify your life if anybody doesn't know who the meters are they were american funk band formed in 1965 in new orleans many many funk classics and probably one of the most sampled bands in in hip-hop uh, art neville one of the neville brothers was their leader mainly known as an instrumental band um yeah the original of this has ironically has lyrics in it though yeah and this song the way that they play it it definitely sounds like some 70s classic rock riffage oh to me. man it sounds like the scorpions rock you like a hurricane <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe and it's really cool how they mix up the time signature on this one i like that now we get to 
the song that I mentioned early on in the show, which on this album is called Dark and Bright. Yeah, I missed but that. On, but on the No Age album, it's called Dark and Light. And this one, when we mentioned it on the No Age album, for me, it reminded me of like some post-punkage, maybe some pill or some chilies. Yeah. But now that I hear this song in the context of this entire album, it takes on a whole new meaning, like Blind Idiot God is so much more than this song, right? Yeah. But I don't know, maybe it's because I was grooving so hard to this two weeks ago, uh, but I am so down with this track, man. It's really good. Yeah. Nice, hey? Yeah. Then we get into uh, just a, like out of left field trio of dub songs to close out the album. Yeah. I, I wish I would have asked Andy about this and I still might. Um, but I, like we've talked about sequencing before and I'm a huge fan of the decision to load up the back end of this record with the reggae tracks. Yeah. I just really totally. like that. Uh, they don't do oh, that yeah. on their other albums. They, they do the, the reggae stuff and their other albums use these dub kind of techniques on non reggae songs as well, which is cool. Yeah. Um, but the other albums all have the, the reggae stuff, but they're kind of throughout the album. I, I like I like it this way. Yeah, so the tracks are three in a row. One is Wise Man Dub, yeah. one is Stealth Dub, and then the last one is Raining Dub. Wise Man Dub's written by Gabe, by the way. I think it's the only one that's not written by Andy. Okay. Actually, they're all written by Andy with Blind Idiot God. That one, Wise Man Dub's written by Gabe. And Blind Idiot God. And Blind Idiot God is how it's mentioned here, yep. yep. And I mean, yeah, I don't know. It just fits on the record yeah. so well. Like, it starts, think, think of how this record starts out. It starts out with the first side with this pummeling, punk, shoegazy, shimmering. What did you even say? What kind of, like, did you say, what kind of metal name did you Black rattle metal. off there? Black metal. Like, all this stuff, right? Fret melting, bass cording. Then it, you flip it over to some classic 70s rock, some post-punk, and you close out with these three dub tracks. Yeah. It's just insane. This is what a real reggae band does, right? They they put all the dub tracks on the end of the album. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my favorite was Stealth Dub. It's got a nice solo from Andy. It's my favorite of, of the three. And I'm pretty sure Raining Dub, it sounds like just a, a dub remix of uh of stealth dub to me yeah slowed down you know yeah you want to talk about the artwork i just have to say uh one more thing the rhythm section in this band is insane uh these dub tracks in particular kind of highlight that for me like people think reggae is easy to play because it's you know people who do it well make it sound effortless but like they are they're really good at it and I mean, they were, they were legit. They play, he mentions in the interview, they played with Ika Mouse. And uh, like I said, I listened to all four of their records this week. And if you took and took them and made like a compilation of the dub tracks, you'd have one hell of a, a dub reggae album. I have to say something about Martin's production on, on this record too. I like it. And I think it suits the sound of the band. Yeah, it works. I think it's, and it doesn't sound dated either. No. There is some there is some stuff that's very 80s on this record. Like, you know. We've heard way worse, man. Yeah, we've heard way, way worse. This doesn't sound dated at all. 
I, I think doing what they're doing with like, you know, not a lot of leads and more, more based around chording, the guitar tone really helps with that, I think. Yeah. And it is a hard thing to do, you know, to get, to get those well, kind of intricacies that, you know, are associated with guitar chords into a, on a recording. They definitely, you can't tell what type of drums are being played, but you can tell they had some good gear too, like an ESP guitar, Seymour Duncan amp. I think that's a GNL bass. Like they weren't buying like pawn shop gear, right? Yeah. No, no they, they're, they're legit, man. And they were very well practiced, very precise. Well, speaking of the art, Ryan, so this came out on LP, CD, and cassette. The art for the cassette is different. Um, it's a painting or a drawing, I'm not sure which, of like the faceless guy with his head down and his hands raised with these long red fingers. Uh, it's also on the CD. Um, I'm thinking maybe they just wanted like a rectangular image for the cassette, you know, instead of using a square. The album cover looks like it is drawn in almost like pencil crayon or maybe pastel. A bunch of psycho faces on there. Totally fits the music. Yeah. And uh, the the same kind of colors are on the back. It almost looks like there is a globe with two hands, a mouth, and some eyes. It's hard to tell what it is. But it's on, it also looks like it's on um, a body, this circle. Like that's... Oh, yeah, I that's missed that, yeah. The head of a body there. The handprints on the face made me think of the Duke with Swa. Oh, yeah. No kidding. Yeah. I didn't think of that. Yeah, that's a good one. Already kind of mentioned the gear, I suppose, and in, in some of the photos here. I love, uh, again, um, Gabriel is like in mid-thumb slap. Yes. With with And it looks like he's playing in this. I'm just assuming it's the jam space, because if these are where these photos are taken, because you can tell in the background of um, the middle picture, Gabriel's back there too, wearing the same cable knit sweater. So it looks like this is from the same photo session. You can see like this tarp rolled up on the back, um, concrete walls. This might be the same location that the video shot. Oh, yeah. And then uh, a couple of band photos, the three of them. Looks like along some sort of bridge, maybe in maybe in Brooklyn. I maybe, don't know. Maybe. And a nighttime shot. But um, interesting images there. Yeah. We already kind of talked about... Um, the credits, we spoke about how it was recorded at BC Studios. Phoebe Love took those pictures, I believe. Yeah, it looks like it, hey? Yeah. Art and layout by Miles Rutland. It looks like the words mastered by John Golden at K-Disc were put in after the fact on my copy. Oh, yeah. I don't know. That must have been during the typesetting or something like that. Yeah. And then it says, um, we. you already mentioned kind of people on the thank you list in the interview, but before the thank you list, it says, quote, it would have been a lot less easy or downright impossible to make this record without use. And then mentions Gray, Greg, Ray, Chuck, Martin, Tim Yohannan, a number of other folks that we, uh, or that you mentioned in the interview, and no dead wax, mm. which is a major letdown. I was looking for like some Cthulhu reference or something like that. <laughs> Um, but the, uh, the label kind of, there's just a yellow and a green label kind of handwritten kind of fits the, uh, 
the theme of the artwork for the rest of the record. Great record, man. I'm sad that it's the only one we get to uh, check out on the show, but I'm pumped to get those three other discs I ordered about them uh, in the mail. Yeah, man. You're going to love them. I can't wait. Ballot result? Ballot result. Ballot result. I could. This is one of those rare ones where I could almost go with any single track. Yeah, I liked it all like, too. Yeah, like almost every one. You you had some standouts though. Uh, my favorites were "Wide Open Spaces," "Subterranean Flight," uh, "Dark and Bright," and uh, "Stealth Dub." Really, "Stealth Dub," the second last one. That makes sense, I guess. Yeah. Hmm. I I would uh, I'd throw my weight behind wide open spaces. We can do that. Done. Good one. Oh hey, thanks Andy for being on the podcast, man. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, it was can't great. wait to check out more of Andy's stuff. Yeah, everyone else should do that too. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brandt, it's SST one hundred and five, the Screaming Trees EP, Other Worlds. Love the Screaming Trees. Can't wait for this. And Brent, we've got a special guest. Yeah, Gary Lee Connors on the podcast. Nice. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.